This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best, featuring in part the Bloomberg Invest Conference, Ray Dalio on the economy. Interest rates have got to be high enough for the creditor, but not too high for the debtor. Stanley Druckenmiller tells a conference another shoe could drop. Silicon Valley Bank, Bed Bath & Beyond, they're probably the tip of the iceberg. Plus, we'll hear from some in the LGBTQ plus community about job challenges. My Monday morning routine typically consisted of rehearsing lines on the tube to the much-dreaded question, what did you do at the weekend? And the tremors running through San Francisco's economy. The short-term outlook is painful. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Ed, we heard from just a huge number of movers and shakers at that Bloomberg Invest conference in New York. Yeah, and let's start here, Denise, with one of the most widely followed names in financial markets. We're talking about Ray Dalio, founder, of course, of the hedge fund Bridgewater. And he tells David Weston there's a lot to watch when it comes to what's happening in the economy and the way it's working or not working right now. Let's listen in. Three things that surprise us that haven't happened in our lifetimes, but happened many times through history, are the creation of an enormous amount of debt and debt monetization. The second is the internal conflict, the large wealth gaps and the internal conflict that makes the politics of uh, populism and so on. And the third is the great power conflict, uh, comparable powers of the United States and China and the possibilities of war. Um, But back to, uh, to your question in terms of the mechanics, there are very basic, simple things. That there is, um, there is a debt cycle. There are short debt cycles. We're used to those. They last, on average, about seven years, give or take about three. Um, and you know you have a recession, and interest rates are, uh, are low, inflation is low, and the Federal Reserve becomes stimulative, and then you have growth. You have non-inflationary growth, and you have inflationary growth, and they tighten monetary policy, and then you have the slow up or the recession that follows until the cycle participates. We, it happens that way. We've had 12 of those. We're in the 13th. We're about halfway through that cycle. We're at the point where interest rates have to rise. Okay, so the level of interest rates, it's, you have to satisfy a debtor and a creditor. And so that means interest rates have to be high enough that the creditor gets a real return, higher than their money. And so, and if you don't do that, you create the cycle that we have before, where money is essentially free, interest rates are nil, or in some cases negative, and you have a situation where you don't have to pay principal, so money was essentially free, then that imbalance is enormous, and it's made more enormous because even then the supply-demand is not adequate. There's not enough demand to buy those bonds, and so the Federal Reserve's got to come in there and print money and buy those bonds and redistribute wealth. So you have that dip. So now you're moving, we have moved to a level of real interest rates. Think about inflation. Um, that is, um, depending on how you calculate, if you look at tips or if you look at short-term interest rates, they need a 1% to 1.5% real rate. Those days that we have seen in the past are over, and there's a big adjustment in that. 
So the, the headline for that is, so who have been the losers? Who have been the winners and who have been the losers? This is a different kind of uh, debt problem in that what happened is in order to create this big transfer of wealth that there needed to be in various ways, uh, the government borrowed a lot of money because they spent a lot more than they earned and they sell a lot of bonds. And then the Federal Reserve buys bonds and it subsidizes those bonds. And so the big losers of this cycle has not been the individual balance sheets because the individual balance sheets have been improved. It is the fact that those who are holding government debt are the ones that are having the losses. So the central banks have all lost a lot of money. Um, the commercial banks bought a lot of these debts. So when we look at the commercial banking problem, it is largely a government debt problem because there was the financing of holding bonds with short-term interest rates, and so that was the squeeze. So you have that particular dynamic. As we move forward, um, the higher you raise the debt-to-income ratio, the more difficult that balancing act becomes. And so we're seeing a trade-off now that interest rates have got to be high enough for the creditor, but not too high for the debtor. And so you're seeing now this adjustment in which you're having sort of a 1%-ish growth rate, not the household sector having a problem, but uh, the, those who are holding the bonds and, and so on, they're having the problems. And so you're seeing growth come down with still an inflation um, issue. The inflation issue comes from two parts, really. Uh, first of all, if you spend a lot more than you earn, um, and you give a lot of money and credit, you're going to have an inflation. But um, it also comes from the supply-demand bond, of bonds. So if you look at who's benefiting in this, the household sector, the workers, are, are benefiting. <clears throat> this isn't a classic recession in which the unemployment rate goes up because the unemployment rate is remaining relatively good because there's wealth transfer, and you have, um, and they are also having higher wage gauges. And then you have the inefficiency of the global supply chains, which has a, happens there. So what that means, I think, is that you have this stubbornly high inflation. We're not going to go down to our targets for a number of the reasons. And then there has to be the real interest rates remaining high in that. And that creates a sort of stagflation kind of environment. So let's talk about that stubbornly high inflation. There are some who think that there are larger forces that may drive it back down. Uh, demographics in particular, uh, uh, too much savings actually globally as the population ages. At the same time, reduction in productivity, less demand coming online. Uh, some people argue, in fact, that we will have the inflation come back down on its own, and therefore the nominal rates, if you add your 1% to 1.5% on top of it for the real interest, they will come down. Do you disagree with that? Yes. Um, <clears throat> In the, um, it's a matter of the amount of money and credit created, and it's also a matter of productivity. And so when we look at the amount of money and credit, we will spend a lot more than we will earn. We know the budgets, we know the projections, we know individuals. That's going, the big risk there is a supply-demand risk. So we are going to sell a lot of bonds and, and then the question is, does the Federal Reserve come in and then start to print and, and make that? So I think from, from the demand 
including employment and the amount of money creation, we have that power. And then we're also living in a different world, particularly as supply chains change. The only big question is the technology impact. Like, if we take a five-year, you were talking about a longer-term yes. horizon, we'll have to talk about technology and the impact that that'll have on that in terms of productivity. But the demographics is not a favorable thing uh, because what we're going to have to do is draw down savings and there's going to be lesser number of population. So in terms of the, lo the uh, labor component, I don't see that as an, um, uh, a net positive. You mentioned that uh, going out, it looks like we're going to be borrowing more than we're earning. Uh, does that mean we are in or headed for a debt crisis? You wrote a book on that as well, studying debt crises since 1945. Are we in a debt crisis or are we headed for one? Um, we are at the, in my opinion, we are at the beginning of a very classic late cycle, late big cycle debt crisis when the supply demand gap, when you're producing too much debt and you have also a shortage of buyers. What's happening now as we have to sell all this uh, debt is we then have, do you have enough buyers? There are changes now in terms of the quantities in the world that are being held by um, large investors around the world that have lost money in these treasury bonds and so on. And then there are geopolitical changes which are having an effect. Some cases, some countries are worried about sanctions. And then there's this geopolitical shift. So when I look at the supply-demand issue, there's a supply-demand issue for that debt. There's a lot of debt. It has to be bought, has to have a high enough interest rate. So a crisis, that's, you know, if we continue down this path in terms of what, what's likely over the next, you know, five and 10 years, then you, what you reach the point that that balancing act becomes very difficult. How will we know? And is it really a function of not having enough buyers for the federal debt? Is there any evidence of that so far? Um, we, we're right at the brink of starting to find out that. The amount of selling of government debt um, collapsed, right? We didn't issue government debt. Um, and now we're going to issue a lot of government debt. And so when one looks at, when we look at the buyers, there appears to be a shortage, a significant shortage of the buyers for that government debt. But we're now at the brink of being able to see what that supply demand um, picture looks like as we go over the next year and two. And you've been listening to Ray Dalio, founder of the hedge fund Bridgewater at Bloomberg Invest New York with our David Weston. And coming up. More on the economy from legendary investor Stan Druckenmiller, CEO at Duquesne Family Office. And from Goldman Sachs President John Waldron. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, we heard from a lot of luminaries at this week's Bloomberg Invest Conference in New York. We sure did, Ed. And one of the big questions, of course, how weak can the U.S. economy end up getting as the Fed keeps interest rates around these tighter levels? So legendary investor Stan Druckenmiller, CEO of Duquesne Family Office, stopped by Bloomberg Invest in New York and told the audience there and Bloomberg's Wall Street reporter, Shanali Basak, that he expects another shoe, well, actually, a whole bunch of other shoes to drop. Every time you've had a significant asset bubble, economic trouble lay ahead, 
But yeah, when you had 11 years of free money, um, people do stupid things. All you have to do is look it up there. But the stupidest is somebody paid $80 billion for Dogecoin, which was invented as a joke. I mean, that can only happen in the world of free money. But the fact that this was arguably the most disruptive economic period we've had since the late 1800s, and there were no bankruptcies, apparently they've started in the last few weeks, tells me there's a lot of stuff under the hood when you go from this kind of environment, the biggest, broadest asset bubble ever, and then you jack rates up 500 basis points in a year. I think the probabilities would suggest that Silicon Valley banks, Bed Bath & Beyond, they're probably the tip of the iceberg. Nothing's a guarantee. I've been wrong a lot. I've been right a few times. But um, yeah, I, our central case is there's more shoes to drop, particularly in addition to the asset markets economically. What are you most worried about? What starts to sink? I could see corporate profits down 20 to 30 percent. Normally, I would say 40 or 50 in a hard landing. But this recession is so anticipated I don't think a lot of corporations are going to be caught with their pants down, which is how normally you lose a lot of money is you're not prepared for something that happens. Um, commercial real estate, you know, I'm not informing anybody in this room of something I don't know, but office is a problem. It would have been a problem anyway, but, but change of lifestyle and COVID makes it an even bigger problem. Financing rates going up make it a problem. I'm worried about credit tightening the next six to nine months. Obviously, the banks um, are going into an economic period that if, in fact, we get a recession, their balance sheets are already impaired, not from where they usually lose money, which is loans, um, from the fact that the Fed convinced them that they're going to keep rates to zero until 24. Uh, so they bought a bunch of treasuries yielding 1% or 2%, and now they're carrying them at 5 So, th So their balance sheets are impaired. But... If we get in a recession, then the real losses comes, which is stuff like credit cards, commercial real estate, that kind of stuff. So those would be my, my worries. You ask me my worries, that's different than my predictions. I, well, the predictions, you've been talking I about- I am so tired of being a bear and being labeled a bear. <laughs> but to the bearish point of view, we haven't seen it. We have not seen that hard landing yet. And when does it come? What does it look like? Do we see it anymore? A lot of people, because we haven't had an economic decline start yet, have changed their forecast from a hard landing to soft landing, and a lot of others have changed it from soft landing to no landing. I haven't changed mine at all. The fact that it hasn't happened yet doesn't change the probability, if it does happen, of the depth of it. $10 trillion, $5 trillion monetary, $5 trillion fiscal was put in during COVID. What has happened is, that created this giant, giant stock of liquidity. I think Jamie Dimon said a couple years ago there were two and a half trillion excess demand deposits. Um, we've been working that liquidity off slowly. That liquidity interruption, liquidity shrink was interrupted when Bank of Japan uh, changed YCC. They went in and they bought $400 billion worth of bonds to defend their bond market. Very odd situation. They raised rates, but then liquidity exploded on it. And then obviously the debt ceiling, Secretary Yellen drew down the TGA, that's basically the Treasury Savings Account, from $700 billion to practically nothing last week. That also ended up in non-issuance of government debt, so that was a big boost to liquidity. All that is set to change now. 
actually the TGA is going to go the other way. She's already stated she wants to build it back up to normal levels. So you're going to have probably about $800 billion in treasuries issued between now and year end. The Fed will be continuing on with QT. You've got the student loan thing, which I think has kept consumption up. That's all changing in September. They're going to have to actually, God forbid, in the United States, somebody actually pays interest on a loan. So to me, the probabilities haven't changed. It's been pushed out relative expectations. But in no way does the fact that it hasn't started yet change the probability of whether it's going to be hard or soft. I would actually argue, since it's taken so long, the Fed has ended up with a higher terminal rate and, in fact, inflation gets stickier the longer it stays in the system, that it increases, not decreases, the probability of a hard landing. And that was widely followed investor Stan Druckenmiller at Bloomberg Invest New York. As we've been talking about, we had a whole parade of people at that conference, some of the top minds in investing, really. And we heard from John Waldron, Ed, president of Goldman Sachs. He was among those who spoke. And he told Shadali, we might be able to avoid a big recession and maybe even avoid a recession altogether. And he's definitely sounding more positive than Druckenmiller, but he did hedge a bit. Let's listen in. I think that what's most challenging is the cross currents. So you can, you can certainly identify a lot of negative impulses. And a lot of us find ourselves talking you know, into those negative impulses and kind of getting more worried, but there's likewise a lot of positive impulses. And I think the fact that there's all this cross current, this is the best predicted recession that hasn't happened yet uh, and may not happen. So we're, we're dealing with a lot of cross currents. In our business, that can tend to make clients sit a little bit more in their hands and be a little bit more muted about their positioning and their activity levels. We obviously have tougher capital markets environment. It hasn't been as robust as we saw coming out of the pandemic recovery period. And so what I'm really reflecting in those comments is more about the activity levels and the cross currents and the, the, the continued debate about will we or will we not have a recession? Will we or will we not have rates that stay higher longer, inflation that stays higher longer? And until we get more resolution on that debate, I think we're going to be in a much more challenging period. I can see scenarios where the second half of the year gets a lot better. We obviously got through the debt ceiling. Now I think really we get back to the primary debate, which is, to me, is inflation. When I talk to our clients, whether they're corporate clients or investing clients, the single biggest debate that I hear is how sticky will it be and how much is the Fed or the ECB going to have to do to get it down to, you know, its 2% target in the U.S. terms, let's say, or, or you know, thereabouts in, in European terms. And I think that's a very hard question to answer, and I'm not even sure the Fed at this point understands what, where that has to be. And I think that's, that debate is going to persist, and that's going to, it's going to really weigh on sentiment. How much is the consensus that inflation will be higher for longer and therefore rates will be too? Well, I, I hear from corporate clients the persistence of inflation in the system. It's felt on the supply side. So whether it's commodity inputs or other supply side inputs, you s- still feel the supply chain imbalance has, has gotten a lot better but there's still pretty positive upward bias on pricing in the supply chain. Obviously, wage pressure remains. It's an extremely tight labor market. You know, I often ask myself late at night, can we actually have a recession with 3.5% unemployment? Seems unlikely. Maybe unemployment has to go a lot higher from here. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, but right at the moment, wage and the recent job report was certainly stronger than many of us would have expected. So wage pressure is still there. So if you're running a company, you've got higher wage prices, higher supply prices, you've passed along that price pressure to your customers. The customers have generally absorbed it. I sense at the moment more concern in corporate 
uh, offices and boardrooms about whether you can continue to price that way and will you have more margin pressure. So there's definitely debate and pressure on margins, which I think is going to be, we haven't really seen that in earnings persistently yet, but I think that's potentially a negative drag on earnings. That was John Waldron, president of Goldman Sachs with Bloomberg Shanali Basic at Bloomberg Invest New York. And coming up, this is Pride Month and dedicated to celebrating LGBTQ plus communities. And to mark Pride Month, we'll hear from some from the community in the early stages of careers in finance, law, and engineering. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. June is Pride Month, dedicated, of course, to celebrating LGBTQ plus communities. We're bringing together four people in the early stages of careers in finance, law, and engineering. And they come to us, Ed, from London, where Bloomberg Daybreak Europe host Stephen Carroll spoke to them for this special report. Let's listen in. My name's Chloe Worley. My pronouns are they, she, and I'm a data engineer at BP. My name is Oren Devlin. My pronouns are he, him, and I work within City Global Sourcing Staffing Office. I'm Jackie Ruldegar. I'm a litigation lawyer at Hogan Levels International LLP. My pronouns are she and her. My name is Harry Randall. My pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm an associate in the UK Investment Bank at Jefferies International Limited. I have previously worked in organisations where I wouldn't have been comfortable in being out in the workplace and I suppose that that was a factor whenever I was looking for new roles and new opportunities. I I went into the recruitment process within City knowing where they stood on social issues and and that was a key aspect of where I wanted to work next. When I first entered the legal industry my Monday morning routine typically consisted of rehearsing lines on the tube to the much dreaded question what did you do at the weekend because I was terrified that if I revealed too much I would out myself. At that point, I was introduced to a lawyer at another law firm, and she told me that overall her experiences had been very positive, and that really calmed me down. And so, yeah, now I'm very open about my sexuality at work and and very comfortable to be out. When I first joined industry straight out of university, I was very much closeted. Having been previously very out and very vocally actively involved in the community, there's this really interesting statistic actually, research from 2018 that states that over 40% of young people, that's people ages 18 to 25, go back in the closet when they start their first job. And that was definitely my initial experience. As soon as I realized that it was a safe space and as soon as I saw other people in the industry, in the office, at work, being out and that being okay, I immediately reverted to how I had always been very vocal, very active in the community. Moving into the workplace was the first time that I was fully out as a gay man. And I think particularly at university, the decision to actually come out was something that was taken out of my control because words travel quick. Uh, So I was very keen to make sure that when I moved into the workplace, I was in control of that. And I chose on what terms I told people I picked the right conversations at the right time because you will never stop coming out and making sure that you 
feel comfortable doing that around certain people is driven by role models who have done that in the past. You can see from their experience that actually everything turns out quite all right. When I started as a trainee solicitor at Clifford Chance, I had the privilege of meeting more senior lesbian lawyers and, you know, they were fine. They'd been at the firm throughout their whole career and that gave me a lot of confidence and I became the firm's LGBTQ rep. But when I left Clifford Chance to go to a US firm, I didn't see any role models uh, and it was quite difficult um, because it's very, it is a distraction being in the closet. You're wasting a lot of energy thinking about, am I going to be found out? You, you, you know, you're, it's quite cagey in your answers. You can't really bond with people as well because you're sort of hiding things. And so with role models, I can't emphasize the importance of them because visibility matters. If you don't meet people like you, you can start to think there's something wrong with the way that you look. I think when we talk about leadership and role models you know city has had a milestone moment in the financial services industry with having jane fraser as the first female ceo of a wall street bank you know that change in that culture you know has brought with it representation and progress for all marginalized groups and voices within our organization we're actively talking about the conversation about representation you know in terms of lgbtq plus people we have a very um very firm target um, of 3.5% to reflect the demographics within society. And in terms of the role modeling, we now have very senior leaders on the trading floor who are now more comfortable in coming out and being out in the workplace, which has historically been misogynistic, chauvinistic. Intersectionality is something that I do take into consideration for everything, really. I think the best DNI initiatives do have an intersectional focus. When we look at discrimination, um, we have to consider the fact that characteristics can be, you know, complex and uh, and interconnected. So you can't separate my blackness from my uh, from my gender and my um, my sexuality. They're all intertwined, and so I may experience. Um, homophobia differently to a white woman on account of my uh, race and I may experience racism differently to a black man on account of my gender. And having those things in mind is very very important. We simply cannot continue to do things the way that has always been done because it isn't working anymore right? So for the energy industry it's more about shifting mindsets and getting people on board with the fact that change has to happen. I think there are in each company, in each business, a group of dedicated allies, employees, resource networks that are on board with that and really want to see that happen. But it's about how we bring the rest of the industry in and meet them where they're at so that we can change together. What I would love to see from corporates moving forward is for us to progress as some, some form of a dual track process in that companies have an obligation to protect all of their employees, be it sexual orientation, gender or other. But I think we also, if we can, need to try and use our platform to raise awareness outside of our immediate environments. There are a lot of people in the world who aren't in as fortunate positions as we are to have that voice to be able to express how they feel and how they think. And actually, for some, the decision is being taken out of their hands and they don't have a say at all. So I would really like to see corporates progressing sort of outside of their immediate as well. I think that City has definitely used its platform and its authority to enact change for the betterment of the LGBTQ plus community in the context of Northern Ireland, where we have more than 3,500 colleagues. City did put their head above the parapet to really lead on the corporate um, campaign in the move towards marriage equality in 2018. And certainly, you know, we're not afraid to stand up for our colleagues and the wider LGBTQ plus community, because at a very basic level, it's the right thing to do. 
just remember that Pride Month is just one month. We're all LGBTQIA for the rest of the year. And I think allied with that is, have, <laughs> pun intended, um, having regular training sessions. I think one-off training sessions on microaggressions and unconscious bias are useful, but you wouldn't expect to be able to run the London Marathon after an hour's training. And more, you know, maybe having the training sessions alongside appraisals or onboarding or when people are going for promotions would be much more effective and useful all year round. I think also making sure that Pride Month isn't viewed as a tick box exercise. It's a 12-month job, effectively, being a member of the LGBTQIA community. I think it takes a lot of work alongside your day job to be involved in such initiatives. It can be tiring. It can be something that you get to the end of the day and you think, I really don't want to do this, but it's the right thing to do and I'm going to do it because I believe in it passionately. So making sure that you can maintain that momentum is key. One of the things that we like to say at BP is pride never stops. It's this huge month in June. We have it every year, but it is all year round for us. So I think the energy that comes out of June, the people that we get on board who start to understand a bit more about the community, about intersectionality, about big issues that the community are facing, lean into that after June and continue that work Pride is a really important date in the calendar, but it should be an opportunity to reflect on achievements throughout the year, but also looking towards what what is next. And I think a healthy way to do that is to engage with the key sector organizations. You know, for ourselves, we're very proud of the work we do as a financial services organization, but we're not always experts on LGBTQ plus issues. And that's where we partner and where we collaborate with key sector organizations to ensure that we are doing right by our community and you know in the current climate i think it's really important to remember that the origins of pride the leaders in those days were black trans women of color and we need to be mindful and cognizant that you know th- those are groups who are being heavily targeted right now and and we need to ensure that we do our best to protect those groups and um, from further persecution And that was a group of people our Stephen Carroll brought together to mark Pride Month, people from the LGBTQ plus community in the early stages of their careers in finance, law, and engineering. And coming up, San Francisco struggles to make a comeback post-pandemic. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And at Up Next, we're featuring a special report you filed this week on some of the strife and some of the pressure the San Francisco Bay Area has been feeling since the start of the pandemic. The Bay Area faces a whole bunch of problems. Some of the lowest office occupancy rates in the nation, slumping tax revenue as well, and also increased crime. And this is all prompting fear and concern for the future of America's biggest tech hub. And it also has local leaders looking to change the current trajectory. And for more, let me toss it over to you, Ed, for this special report. The number one question in San Francisco about the economy these days is how bad is it? Depending on to whom you talk, the answers range from horrendous to it will come back. Bloomberg California Bureau Chief Karen Breslau. 
The short-term outlook is painful. There is no way to dress that up. I haven't heard anybody try to do that. Now, Mayor London Breed says the city is finding the way back and has a history of doing so. Let's get out of our comfort zone and start thinking bigger Let's start thinking differently. So Breslau notes that other major cities are suffering as well, but that San Francisco's problems really began when tech companies started exploring other areas of the country about eight years ago, and then COVID hit. The question becomes, what takes the place of San Francisco as it was on uh, March 12th, 2020, when the world changed the next day? Workers stopped coming to the office and are still not coming back. San Francisco is still a laggard among U.S. cities and world cities in terms of return to office rates. They are around 35 percent here considerably lower than than other cities. While Mayor Breed agrees, she says the city must reinvent itself and says it is. 27% vacancy rate for office. We have in our life sciences like biotech and all of that industries where lab space is needed. There's a less than 5% vacancy rate. So she says San Francisco is talent rich. And we talk about San Francisco and the Bay Area having the densest place of engineering talent anywhere with artificial intelligence growing here larger than any other industry and all of the various technologies, not just information technology, but all the other layers of technology that is basically changing the world, all the venture capitalists, all of that is happening in San Francisco. So how do we start to repurpose space? Breed says AI is going to be very important. And now we're at $15.6 billion of investment in artificial intelligence right here of the top 20 AI companies, 16 are in the Bay Area, 11 are in San Francisco. And Breslau agrees. People are so concentrated in technology and in office work that can easily migrate from the office buildings downtown that are now really empty. But you still have a situation where the lack of office workers impacts retail. People are not returning to the office, and that affects retail population. It swells considerably in the before times, well over a million. That population is gone. So these retail businesses, you know, restaurants, every every place that depends on pedestrian traffic, they're hurting terribly, and it, it does contribute to a, a pretty vicious cycle of closures. A new San Francisco Chamber of Commerce poll for City Beat says over a third of voters polled do not feel safe in the city during the day, and 70% don't feel safe at night. Breed says things are getting better. It wasn't just police officers. It was off-duty police officers who we rehired and brought back to the neighborhood, and we are staffing up the Union Square area differently than we have before. Those stores who were fearful and concerned, record sales, not to mention expansion. And tourism. Well, Breed says San Francisco International flights continue to increase and says with Asia opening up, things will get better. So San Francisco's future, Breslau. It's certainly not going to be a office worker-centric culture. It's not going to be a downtown skyscraper place. You know, we're going to have to reimagine the purpose not only of San Francisco, but of downtowns writ large. Breed says it will get done. Because this city is a city that knows how when it matters. It will take new innovative imaginings and grit and perseverance. Time will tell. In San Francisco, I'm Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Radio. 
And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Stay with us now. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. <laughs> 